I, I didn't really believe that this moment will happen at some point in the Sudanese society uh, because if more than 500,000 people were killed in Darfur, nobody protested. I really lost hope. But then all of a sudden I regained my hope and I, I, I felt the pride of being Sudanese. Hi, I'm Idua Conrad. And I'm Henriette Chakar. Welcome to the 972 Podcast, where we interview activists, politicians, and journalists about issues and stories that other media outlets tend to ignore. In early April, Sudanese armed forces deposed dictator Omar al-Bashir following nearly half a year of popular protests in the country. Bashir, who is wanted by the ICC for genocide and crimes against humanity, has ruled the country for nearly 30 years. Most of the coverage has focused on voices in Khartoum, but there's a huge Sudanese refugee population around the world, including over 10,000 in Israel. Ido, you've recently spent some time with the Sudanese refugee population in Israel. Tell us what you saw. Well, when it became clear that Bashir was about to fall, I headed out to South Tel Aviv to spend the day with the Sudanese community there as they watched the revolution on their phones and TV screens. Personally, it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had as a reporter. But along with the excitement of witnessing regime change in their country, it sounds like there's a lot of caution among refugees, that the generals who deposed Bashir are the same people who committed genocide against their people in his name. Last week, 972's Michael Schaefer Omerman sat down with Mutasa Mali, a refugee from Darfur and one of the leaders of the Sudanese community in Israel, to talk about what it's like to watch a revolution take place while in exile, the changing situation for refugees in Israel, and his dreams of returning home. Welcome, Mutasim. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. So we've all been watching the news from Sudan, and after months of popular protests, the military in Sudan removed Omar Bashir as the president. How does that feel as a Sudanese, as a Darfuri citizen, as a as a refugee, as somebody who's who's in exile, who's unable to return? What does it what does it feel like to watch these these changes happen from afar? The uprising in Sudan did not start. Um couple of months ago. It started years ago. Um, there were different sorts of uprisings, revolutions. There were, um, you know, um, military revolution against the regime. It started in Darfur uh, almost more than a decade ago, uh, two decades ago. Um, it started in Noble Mountains and Bulunan. And the reason uh, for all of those uh, revolutions um, are mainly because of wanna uh, maintain the identity of the Sudanese people uh, from you know uh, systematic pr- plans by the central governments in Khartoum to change the racial identity of the Sudanese um, original ethnic groups, and so the December uprising was just a continuation of what happened in the past, and. It was just so, I, I didn't really believe that this moment would happen at some point in the Sudanese 
society uh, because if more than 500,000 people were killed in Darfur, nobody protested uh, to say, hey, this prison should not serve anymore and should be indicted. I think I really lost hope. But then all of a sudden I regained my hope and I, I, I felt the pride of being Sudanese. And for me to see this from far away is just so painful because I've uh, myself and many others who made it to Israel or some other countries um, have struggled so much. Uh, many of us were imprisoned many, uh, several times. Some of our comrades were killed and, and all of that. And, uh, and to see this happening while we're away, um, it is just so painful. But at the same time, we're so proud of um, our people, our country, and our just struggle. And I think um, Sudanese people have waited so long for this moment. Uh, we're we're yet to to celebrate a victory, but I think we are on the right track right now, and I think it's just you know wonderful feeling to, uh, to see what is happening in Sudan today. Where were you? What were you thinking when you first understood that something was about to happen? I have to say, the first thing I thought about was, uh, is it possible for me to fly right now and to be part of? you know, um, the change that is taking place. And um, and on the morning I woke up and listening to the army music, like, uh, you know, um, that uh, there will be a statement very soon by the uh, by the Sudanese army. This is on Sudanese radio on your Sudanese phone Sudanese radio, on Facebook, on all of the Sudanese uh, news um, organizations. And, um, and, and so it took us... Um, hours to hear Army's statement declaring al-Bashir is no longer president and so um, I was so stressed and I I, I felt just you know um, uh, helpless and um, and I felt like I just needed to be there and if there was an option for me to fly right at that moment back to Sudan I think I would do so Do you feel like the day when you can do that is closer today than it was a few Abs- weeks ago? Absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand, especially when you speak of refugees in Israel, is that when people make it to places somehow uh, a lot better than where we came from, uh, speaking of security-wise or economic-wise and all of that, uh, they have, um, you know, um, they have a belief that these people might not go back home at some point and um, and today I can say with confidence uh, I don't want to consider myself a refugee anymore because I feel like the country that I'm dreaming of is in a process to be shaped and I don't want to be called a refugee I have a country right now maybe it is not a perfect time for me, or maybe it's too early to think of going back right at the moment, but I know for sure the day that myself and many others will return home to help building our country is coming. And so, um, you know, um, the title of being called refugee is going to end at some, uh, some point and soon. I hope so. Can you say a few words about how or why you left your country? 
the reason why I left the country, uh, left Sudan, is basically the reason why the uprising um, started. Um, um, I I came from the region of Darfur, and Darfur um, is experiencing systematic marginalization for so many decades. Until of 2003, when the central government, led by Bashir and its militia, started to systematically attack uh, villages inhabited by African indigenous groups. And my village was part of the villages being attacked by the government. A number of people were killed. My family and I um, separated in 2003. And so they had to go to a displaced persons camp in the northern Darfur state. They're living there until now. And I moved to the south until in the end I made my way, um, you know, fleeing the country, making it to Israel after a long, long journey of being imprisoned in Khartoum several times for, you know, uh, political activism in a country that should, um, you know, um, host all of us despite our uh, race or religion or political orientations to leave the country wasn't even an option like it's not something that I've decided with the intention that I need to move the, uh, to leave the country so that I can find a safe place um, you know I had to leave because all the doors were closed and the only option back then was to pick up a machine gun and to retaliate or defend myself and my family and my land. And um, in order to promote the ideal uh, of peace and justice, um, I didn't think it was the right decision to pick up a machine gun and uh, retaliate and kill um, you know, other human beings to promote those values. And so that's part of the reason why uh, for me it was... Um, uh, the other option was to leave the country not only for my own um, personal safety but also to continue the advocacy to um, um, to speak of those who are still um, living under the tyranny of the Bashir regime and so that's part of the reason why I left the country And when did you arrive in Israel? Uh, I arrived to Israel in 2009, uh, May uh, 5th in 2009, after crossing the Israeli-Egyptian borders, uh, when Egyptian guards were shooting from every direction. Um, and there were two main reasons why Israel, I mean, you know, um, I stayed for Asia for a very short period of time because I was subject to detention subject to uh, deportation because of the political um, coordination or security uh, ties between the Sudanese government and Egyptian government back then. And so people like me who are from Darfur or from Noba Mountains or Blue Niles or even South Sudanese back then before they became an independent state, we were labeled as rebellions posing threats to Sudanese and Egyptian government's national security. 
and that's part of the reason why uh, I didn't remain there. And the other reason, uh, as a person who came from Darfur, uh, the, the 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 people that stood with the struggle of Darfurism and and, and uh, um, many people who are you know um, displaced in Sudan are um, Jewish activists, and uh, when they march to say uh, we. Um, have been there before and we cannot let it happen again. They founded organizations to save Darfur and uh, to speak up against the atrocities of the Sudanese government. I think that was one of the reasons why I believed Israel would be, a, as a Jewish state, of course, would be a safe place for me and those who um, fully uh, hoping for a shelter, at least temporarily. And that's part of the reason why I made it in 2009. Israel never exactly opened its doors to Sudanese refugees, but things have also changed a lot and for the worse over the past decade. Can you talk about, in your experience personally, but also as as an activist and as an advocate, what does that change look like? I think when the first time I entered Israel, I was immediately taken to a prison in the south of Israel named Saharunim. Um, I was held there for four and a half months. And I did not complain about the conditions of prison because I've experienced worse than that. Um, I did not complain about, uh, you know, how, you know, myself and many others who were in prison being treated. I thought the prison back then was only a place where uh, they sort of uh, want to make um, um, screening to make sure who's entering the country and who's really seeking asylum and who's not. But that wasn't the case because there was no option to apply for asylum back then. And so that's when I really started thinking of um, how and what can I do to change the status quo. And it really didn't work out because it seems like um, it seemed back then um, when I tried to speak to some of the prison service officers, they weren't even aware of the asylum uh, process, and so I realized that there was something wrong, and it became even worse when I was released after four and a half months um, with a bus ticket to Central Bus Station in Tel Aviv, and I didn't have friends or family or money or how to even start my life and all of that. I it was shocking to me, um, and then coming all the way to Tel Aviv and see people in parks and have no place to uh, to go, have no health insurance, some people were sick and all of that. That was, um, it was even a lot more shocking for me and that's part of the reason why, um, you know, um, I started working on, uh, working with uh, communities who arrived before me uh, in order to address the issues that asylum seekers are facing. Uh, and I have to note that this is not the primary struggle that I should have uh, started, you know, investing my energy on it because my primary struggle is changing what is happening back in Sudan, speaking of millions who have been displaced from their homes. Um, and so that was supposed to be my primary struggle. But then I really could not focus on that while I'm myself is struggling with, you know, my daily living conditions and uh, living under the stress of being deported today, not today, tomorrow, being detained, 
and all of that uncertainty. And so that's when I really felt the Israeli government is perhaps, you know, deliberately um, leaving, leaving refugees and asylum seekers in limbo. You are the only Darfuri or the only Sudanese person in Israel to actually have received refugee status. You were the executive director of the African Refugee Development Center. You became a spokesperson of, of your community in many ways. What were your hopes then, and do you still have them today? I was actually sent to the Holod detention facility while I was the executive director of the ARDC. Holod was a... In 2014. Holod detention a... facility in the south of Israel, where um, it was designed mainly for Sudanese and Eritreans. Um, um, the, ba- the basic idea was to send Sudanese and Eritreans indefinitely until they decide to leave to their countries of origin. And so I spent there 14 months. But I went there with the hope that uh, my being there would be, will help this struggle uh, for a better uh, status for refugees. And actually, the struggle was f- even far beyond the status uh, refugee status, right? It was basically about how refugees and asylum seekers should be treated in Israel's countries, you know, based on uh, refugees and immigrants. And it was about how the Israeli society should look at the strangers, not necessarily refugees and asylum seekers, because, again, our circus really... Uh, about the Israeli society more than about the specific, concrete asylum seekers issue. I had hoped that this could work out because we were able to rally uh, thousands of Israelis to bring them together to support our struggle. And to come to the Kikar Rabin in 2014, Rabin, Rabin Square, to see over 20,000 people coming, refugees and Israelis and all of these people. That there, was, there was a big walkout from the detention center, an act of civil disobedience. And... Right. All of those really gave me hope that something should change. And then a year later, uh, in 2015, um, I was released from the Holo Detention Facility. And then a year later, it was in 2016, I was given a refugee status. And so I had two feelings back then. One is I was really happy because that could serve as a precedent to uh, for status for many others to follow. On the other hand, it was stressful because, you know, to be the first and the only Sudanese to be given refugee status and everybody will look at you uh, asking why only you and all of that was, it was really stressful. And it was a very tough position. Um, I didn't want to be um, in that position because it was just too much. Um, being questioned by so many people, what happened, what just happened, only you, and uh, we started this struggle together. These questions, I, I hear this every day. And personally, I have no justification why only me. Like, if you ask me today, what, you know, what made your case different? Mm-hmm. You got refugee status and others not? I have no answer to that. I know I shared a very similar story with uh, the rest of Sudanese, at least those who came from Darfur. And and so that was one thing. Um, and so I, I, I really had hope that, okay, this might be um, um, 
you know, a gateway for many refugees to be recognized. And I forgot um, that given refugee status for one person cannot serve as a president because the government, again, uses the argument that we check individual cases, we make individual individual assessments, and whoever is determined to be refugee will give him or her the status. And uh, the contra- uh, contra- contradictory part of this is that the government is unwilling even to review individual claims. And so, um, unfortunately, nothing changed until today, and I'm still the one and the only Sudanese to be given refugee, refugee status since 2016 until today, which is so unfortunate. Since you were released from Kholot, you went to law school in Israel. You graduated from law school. You're probably the only Sudanese person in Israel to do that as well. Absolutely. Why? What drew you to the law? What What do you hope to do with it? Um, so, uh, you know, before a law degree, I, I, I have a degree in geology. I did this back in, like I finished this in 2007. And um, the reason why I went for geology in the beginning was just, you know, gateway for university where I can use university campuses uh, a space to sp- to you know to express my views because Sudan is um, totalitarian regime and so th- was, that was, was the university in Sudan at the time a freer place than the rest of not really but was the only place in Sudan where you can freely speak um, express your views even though in the end you get detained right and so um, that was the re- main reason uh, but then, uh, looking at my life experience, and uh, you know, I had to grow up uh, to, uh, to grow up away from my family. Um, my family is displaced, and uh, millions of Darfuris are displaced. Hundreds of thousands of refugees, systematic persecution, and uh, crossing, um, you know, leaving like you know, leaving my country, um, going to Egypt and being chased all the time. And crossing Israeli Egyptian border and coming to Israel and being detained unfairly, and I had to struggle with my status for more than seven years only for a refugee status. It's not even, you know, um, um, wasn't asking for citizenship. But all of this, everything that I had to do in my life, is uh, is always about struggle and fight. And so I thought of. Uh, I have to go for law school um, to help, um, you know, not only myself, but to help the broader community that I'm always, uh, I always aspire to serve. Um, of course, I want to help refugees and asylum seekers, not only in Israel, but across the world. That's why I did my internship at Harvard University, helping Salvadorans, Venezuel- uh, Venezuelans, and people from really Latin America totally different world um, but also beside helping refugees and immigrants I want to help build my country help um, you know advance the ideals of peace justice and equality in the country uh, named Sudan a lot of asylum seekers have left Israel in the past few years and it seems that more and more are leaving seeking a more 
stable, safer refuge in mostly Western countries. Do you think there's any hope for Israel changing the way that it treats refugees? Is this part of a broader global trend? Um, if I can answer that question, I would say I don't want to um, seem pessimistic. Um, I'm trying to be more realistic, and I really used to believe that Israel can kind of still, you know, be a better place for those who need a shelter, those who need it, the most refugees and asylum seekers. But unfortunately, um, I've been in this for 10 years now, and there were a number of people before me that were still in the same situation. And I really don't believe that the Israeli government is willing to um, to solve the issue of refugees and asylum seekers. And today, like back in the days, I would say a couple of years ago, it was about the status. If people were given proper status, people can live in a dignified way. But this is not the case today. Today is not only about the status, as I mentioned. Today is about, you know, how the average Israeli person looks like uh, looks at a refugee um, as um, an a uh, African refugee, and um, and I think I'm not here to blame the Israeli public, rather the Israeli government that incited the public. And to have a negative perception against refugees and asylum seekers, and in order to order to solve that, I think the government has to change its narrative. And I don't see that happens with the newly elected government. Unfortunately, refugees and asylum seekers will have to find other ways. To make it to safer places, um, and I can tell a number of people who made it to Western countries their their lives have totally changed, and I think that's why a uh, number of people lost hope and faith here, and they think of other ways to make it somewhere else. Which is, as somebody who's been here in the country in Israel for many years, I'm very deeply connected. Um, I'm saying all of this. Um, not undermining the opportunities that I've got in Israel, right? Like I consider myself super privileged to be in this position today and all of that. And I also appreciate the fact that, um, you know, I'm here so far. Physically, nobody harmed me or being detained and sent back to Sudan, right? I'm still here. These are great things, but I think it's a loss for Israel to have... Um, you know, to push away refugees and asylum, so it would be an added value to the Israeli society. When you think about, when you imagine going home, walk me through what that what that looks like, what that feels like to you. Um, number one thing, um, like I'm thinking about this every day. Um, think about, um, you know, the fact that I'm gonna reunify with my family um, my close family who lost their home 
you know, more than 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago. And finally be able to sit with them on a dinner table, lunch table. And I think that feeling is, um, um, I don't know, it's, um, I, I, I really don't think this is something that will finally happen, but certainly it will happen. And the other thing would be, um, you know, um, being in exile is one of the hardest thing you can ever experience. You can hear everything from everyone, and all you can do is just to ignore, um, or in 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 worst case or best case scenario, defend yourself. But I think the experience of being exiled is so tough, and so finally to feel that I have a land, a country that I can finally go back and serve proudly and be part of the uh, part of my society, part of you know regaining my social connections and and um, uh, be part of my uh, people. I think that was just um, unimaginable moments, and I think. Um, I, I'm, I'm just dreaming of that day to come, and Sudan will hundred percent be home for everyone who needs it. I hope that day comes sooner than you could imagine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here, Mutasim. Appreciate it. I'm Henriette Chakar, and this episode was produced by myself, Michael Schaefer-Omerman, and Ido Conrad. If you like what you just heard, hit the subscribe button, tell your friends, and if you really have extra two minutes, just write a review. It really helps us, you guys. Really, really, like... (laughs) 